and welcome to Phil's Breakfast Messel episode 83. This episode we I had a couple of requests for because obviously at the moment most of the world is not going out to see a lot of live music so I'm recommending a few live albums and live DVDs I've really enjoyed. Obviously this is the most impossibly vast topic like there, there's millions of brilliant ones so I've kind of cherry-picked a few favourites but to help out with that I've asked listeners to also submit some of their favourites so this episode will be half and half my own reviews and some listener submission ones, so hopefully there'll be a nice broad spectrum of albums covered. I've always found discussing with friends that live albums, live DVDs, that kind of recordings of bands, is kind of a divisive topic. There's a lot of people who very much, I found, of the opinion, why would you ever buy a DVD, um, why would you ever watch a concert when you could just go to it? Like, obviously it's a far inferior experience that realistically costs about the same price you know your average gig tickets about 10 15 quid your average live dvds 10 15 quid and to some extent they've got a point but i think i've always really liked the experience of a, of a good live dvd because or video or any kind of recording like that because you get something very different to it than what you get from actually being in the venue watching a band obviously watching a band in the flesh is incredible because you've got that shared experience of a massive audience there is nothing quite like you know seeing a band doing their excellent closing track in a room full of 200 people who all love this song just as much as you and and that's super exciting but what a what a dvd has over that experience is you know when i'm when i'm watching kind of something like my sugar from the mosh pit i cannot see what anyone in stage is playing i you know especially for shorter people than myself like you can often go a whole gig without seeing anything like i'm <laughs> i'm fortunate enough i'm six foot two I, I most gigs i can see okay but my girlfriend's significantly smaller than me she's had whole gigs where she has just had a view of the back of the guy in front's head um and then, like we're live you, you get that kind of you can zoom in on exactly what guitarists are playing, exactly how that works in reality. But unlike, say, like your sort of studio footage, it is the warts and all version. It is that sort of more simplistic captured thing of this is how this song actually works when a band is forced to perform it with no overdubs. I think the other interesting part of your live recording is that sometimes it captures stuff that you're never going to get to see. Because as much as you might get to go see X touring band and you can, you know, wait six months and they'll come round again. Sometimes what's caught on a live DVD are these one-off experiences. They, or captures of a point in time with a certain lineup that might never perform again. You know, sort of, say, say you look at Opeth's four DVDs. Those are four very distinct eras of the band. Their first one, Lamentations, is with the old lineup of Martin uh, Martin Lopez on drums, who you know exited the band around Ghost Reveries era, and for me is still like it's still the drummer I most enjoyed them with. So having a capture of that is absolutely amazing to witness, and it's often like something I put on like that Lamentations, uh, especially the first half of it. I think I often listen to preferentially to Damnation as as a as a sort of audio recording because some of the songs have a bit more life. There's a whole section of, uh, I believe, Closure, which is, like, dragged out into, like, this eight-minute epic rather than its four-minute start point. 
the other side of like where I guess this would be like live albums versus live DVDs. Like the the reason I quite like a live album is for certain bands it's quite a different sound. Like if they're well recorded, obviously there's plenty of disastrous live recordings, but a really well put together live album, you catch a band in that element where as I was saying before, we've with no overdubs, it's just purely, you know, what the two guitars can pull off without being able to layer all sorts of stuff. So sometimes you get a kind of rawer, more brutal approach. Um, I spoke before about Demonic Resurrection's live album. They're a band on studio album I always felt could have done with a bit more of a punch, but live, like, the intensity has just turned up that bit more and everything comes across a bit more aggressive, a bit more heavy, and... Again, it's one where some of those live versions of tracks, I feel, are the sort of definitive thing. Now, none of this is going to sell it to people who have absolutely no interest in it. If you're, you know, you're at this point of almost a year into the pandemic and you haven't been watching your live streams or, or live DVDs obsessively at this point, there there is no substitute. And then they're not a substitute, but I just think they are really interesting artefacts that are well worth sort of bands still investing in and it's one of those things like, i do hope there remains an industry for it and i guess particularly with that move towards bands like live streaming little events like that is almost making it more of a thing you know bands over this year have done loads of recordings of specialist one-off events you know shining playing black jazz in full was one i really enjoyed from early 2020 and that's something i think they've got a dvd where they've done basically the same thing but other than that that's the one time they've done that and even it's with a completely different lineup again so it has a very different feel to it now i'm kind of rambling here and arguing with like a a straw man half remembered argument from 10 years ago but what i'm getting at is i think live dvds and live albums really serve a purpose even for bands that do sort of come around and play regularly and at the moment, I'm, I've been finding them really great solace from how much I'm missing gigs. Like, they, they are no, no substitute whatsoever, but it's still keeping me engaged and focused on that world of live music I love so much. And it's the best I'm going to have for, for quite a few months by the looks of it. So the first uh, one I want to talk about is Bloodbath's The Vacan Carnage. This one came out in 2008 on Peaceville Records. So this kind of plays into my point of capturing events you're never really going to see otherwise. At this point in time, we're two albums into Bloodbath's career, and they were very much this studio project, you know, made up of members of um, Opeth and Catatonia and whatever Dan Swano was, what project he was working on at the time. But they were all people who were way busier with other stuff that this never made financial sense to really tour. Uh, and I guess they were probably quite a bit smaller until the Fathomless Mastery came out. But these, this was this one-off show they got booked to do, Vakken 2008, um, this kind of like big main stage performance, and kind of perfect for a band like Bloodbath at the time because rather than having to fill the usual headline set, it's just a festival set, which is well under an hour. I think the... The runtime of the the album is fifty five minutes. She's kind of perfect for a band with two two relatively short um, albums and an EP at this point. I don't think Unblessing the Purity had quite come out. So 
they were reunited uh, with uh, Mikhail Ackerfeldt after having Peter Tagrant of Hypocrisy fronting them for a bit. And the set is this really fantastic um, mixture of all the classic tracks from from those three albums. So we've got the entirety of their debut Breeding Death EP, Resurrection Through Carnage, like probably about half that album's played, and again about half of Nightmares Made Flesh getting in I'd say pretty much every song I loved by the band at that point in time, barring the slightly odd um, exclusion of Cry My Name, which I, I thought was their one of their really famous ones, but apparently apparently not good enough to make the live set. This is just an absolutely fantastic recording. It has a lot of... Um, they, they, I think it has the edge in terms of tone over the uh, first album, Resurrection Through Carnage. Like, a lot of those songs sound more intense on this, and some of that might be the kind of axe doing the drumming rather than Dan Swanner who recorded it on the album. But the drums sound a bit weird on Resurrection Through Carnage. Personally, still my favourite Bloodbath album. I absolutely love the writing of it. It's such a such a good tribute to the kind of the old Swedish death metal scene. But on this live album, just everything is just turned up to 11. It's just, like, it's just all a bit nastier and heavier. Something that's absolutely amazing to see captured live as well is that, like, vocal trade-off. Like, 2008, we're looking at, like, the absolute peak of Mikkel's screaming abilities. And at this point in time was, I remember Dan Swano being interviewed sort of saying he wasn't really interested in screaming anymore because sort of, he was worried about damaging his clean singing voice. So getting that kind of capture of both of those two, who I still rate as two of the best screen vocalists out there, you know, easily both in the top five, especially in their heydays, going against each other, just, it's such a good death metal attack. Now, I'm sure you're all familiar with Bloodbath, but they are that band who are just, like, the, you know, prog guys tribute to kind of really stripped back to the point death metal, like, really early Swedish and kind of uh, early Florida scene worship, although I think with this this era they were more more in the Swedish camp, more in that kind of Stockholm sound. I guess something that's quite interesting about this as well is it's one of the only live albums I never think of, and I think this kind of plays into what kind of seasoned tour veterans all these people are, but I can't think of another live album off the top of my head that is a band's debut performance. This is their first time as Bloodbath performing to an audience. Now, obviously, past this point, especially like now Nick Holmes is on board and fronting them, Bloodbath play as often as half the bands like their other members are in. But it's this is incredibly tight given that. And it has that thing as well of Mikhail's like easy front manning, like he's so comfortable talking to an audience. <laughs> that's something that's kind of odd about this. If you're used to Opeth and them live, is he's always bantering and kind of being silly with the audience. And there's no difference for Bloodbath, which is very strange for a death metal band. I think for most kind of traditional death metal bands I've seen live, their front men tend to be incredibly serious and and often as well, I guess to kind of keep the intensity up, don't really interact with the audience a hell of a lot. Like, I think in bands like Vader, barely speak between songs other than to just essentially introduce them. Um, whereas this has a load of, like, kind of quite quite fun kind of interaction with the audience. The particular classic is, is Miguel telling the audience to respond to them in the death metal voice. 
and so you get the audience doing like a a low kind of growl attempt and he keeps making them go higher until the highest point of doing a danny filth impression it it's quite amusing i remember when i first heard this like i thought it was genuinely like really kind of charming and funny but it is quite at odds with the nastiness of the sound of bloodbath there they're a band with songs like ominous blood vomit it's yeah it's it's quite interesting i think as well this album it's the reason i love it so much is it captures them at probably probably my favorite point in time in terms of all their all their releases i mean the absolute sweet spot which they never played live during would have been just after unblessing the purity came out uh, before fathomless mastery like the unblessing the purity ep is my personal favorite but we're getting off topic from from this being a live one their presentation on stage is actually quite fun like they they're all wearing these ripped white shirts and covered in blood which compared to how i saw them later like uh when i finally saw them live uh around i think 2011 uh mikhail i remember was wearing like a leather jacket and had it his aviators on and it's sort of um this was the first time for a lot of people seeing him performing live without a guitar like he just just screaming and i remember his vocals at that point were absolutely incredible um although i think it was that tour that sort of damaged his scream voice to the point where i i think i hope i'm not sort of uh casting aspersions it's never been quite as good since he sort of overdid it doing bloodbath for too long but the reason i chose the uh vacuum carnage over um Bloodbath over Bloodstock, which came out in 2011, and a gig I was actually at. I saw I saw Bloodbath at Hellfest and Bloodstock that year. That's when they started really touring. Um, it's because it's just a better set. the The Bloodbath over Bloodstock one is odd. Like it's not even so much on the band. The crowd were just very lifeless for that. And I I don't know whether it was their like sort of billing in the day. It, it felt very odd recording a live DVD like middle of the day, but yeah for whatever reason like i remember it being an experience where um yeah the crowd sort of seemed to be saving their energy and i guess maybe because like i remember it being a very exhausting period because you had bloodbath and then it was gojira and then cannibal corpse which is just essentially if if you're like me at festival that's just three hours straight of mosh bits so it, yeah maybe people were just saving their energy for gojira but yeah it was kind of a shame because it wasn't the best selling of bloodstock it's still a cool set list and it's got all that kind of fathomless mastery material in there. So it's it's quite a different live album to the, the Whack and Carnage. But with with this first one, I just think it's such an interesting capturing at a point in time. It's like a really tight set. And also it's a completely different lineup. Um, I think this would be the only gig Dan Swano ever did with the band. And, and having that kind of... It's only a slight thing, but having his his backing vocals alongside uh, Anders backing and then, you know, obviously Mikhail's incredible, incredible growl, like, just added so much to the set. And they're really tight. Like, all of them are such excellent musicians. Like, it, these are near-perfect performances of these songs, despite it being their first show with the band. Like, I'm glad they went on to do a lot more, but, like, the sound has certainly changed and witnessing them say i think back in 2018 i saw them last like it's a very different live set now so there's still there still is something in this album even if um even if they're a band i, I fully expect like once touring's happening again like i go see again like the working carnage still has a 
a special like a special place and it's still like a really decent listen and it's one as well where like not just the dvd forms great like this is quite a good live album in itself <laughs> you over to the first of our listener submitted reviews for a kind of related band um this is from matt wilberley of punishing brutality podcast what makes a perfect live performance well it has to sound good obviously set list is key it needs to put the band's best material front and center a rip-roaring opener to shake the audience loose a couple of popular numbers but not too many for the uninitiated in the crowd, some classics from the good old days, a big time closer or two. A bit of audience interaction is helpful, but not essential. But you want to feel the live experience here. You have to be able to feel like you were there. You want the ultimate lineup, of course. And like the set list, this is perhaps a function of the most important criteria of live album greatness. It needs to capture a band at the peak of their powers. It's not just a listening experience, but a snapshot of a time and place, an audio time capsule immortalizing something collectively experienced with all the spontaneity and the inevitable fuck-ups that are invariably bleached from a studio recording. Opeth have released quite a few live albums at this point. They're all excellent. Of particular note are two incredible live double albums. Lamentations, recorded in 2006, is half acoustic, mostly from the Damnation album, followed by a set constructed from the band's heaviest material. In 2010, they celebrated their 20-year anniversary by playing at London's Royal Albert Hall, no less, the seminal masterpiece Blackwater Park, back to front, followed by a second set where they played a song from each of their remaining albums that they had never played live before. 
that show has a special place in my heart, not least because it's absolutely epic, incredible, but because, well, I was there. However, when I think about the criteria for live album greatness I described earlier, I always come back to 2007's The Roundhouse Tapes. This is peak Opeth, at the pinnacle of their golden era, touring the unparalleled masterpiece Ghost Reveries, almost the classic lineup drumming legend Martin Lopez had recently left and been replaced by Martin Axenrot, plus new keyboardist Per Weiberg. It's a year before the release of Watershed, which, while good, signaled the beginning of the decline of this peerless band that had up to that point released, depending on your personal proclivities, somewhere between five and eight masterpieces in succession. Despite Ghost Reverie's release just a year earlier, there's only one song off the new album. The crowd pleaser and longtime set opener, Ghost of Perdition, comes in second. And by the way, don't you hate it when you see a band and they fill 80% of the show with new songs and pay scant lip service to their older material? I digress. But instead, they kick off with the second song from their third album, When, a perhaps slightly peculiar choice, but one that absolutely works with its blasting drums and iconic closing refrain. The band invests over 20 minutes of the show in two epics from their first two albums, something they never do anymore with the classics Under the Weeping Moon and The Night and the Silent Water given their due credit and positioned where they belong alongside the best of Opeth's back catalogue. It's sing-along time in the middle of the set with a pair of huge crowd-pleasers, Bleak and The Face of Melinda, the latter undoubtedly one of the band's most memorable songs and one that never gets played live anymore. There's a nod to the hugely successful acoustic album Damnation with the single Window Pane, before they bring down the house with the dual hammer blows of the monstrous Blackwater Park and perennial live staple Demon of the Fall. It's an absolutely perfect set list that requires no adjustment. It showcases both the band's best and most popular material, seldom the same thing, while doing credit to their earlier work in a way many bands, Opeth included, seem to avoid. But most importantly, it all sounds incredible, not just from a mixing perspective, which is obviously great, but in the way these songs are sung and played. Particular highlights are the cavernous guitar tone of The Night in the Silent Water and the delicacy of Mikhail's lead playing in Melinda, both of which sound to my ears better than they do on the studio version. The thing about live albums that makes them so great, I think, is the nostalgia they evoke on a personal level for the listener. It's almost inevitable that most people's favourite live album will be won by their favourite band, and perhaps that's necessary because of the level of intimacy with the music required to identify all the tiniest quirks and deviations that make live renditions so interesting. So it is with me. I was lucky enough to see Opeth several times around this period, and they've always been my favourite band, and this recording takes me back to their glory days like no other. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for that fantastic review, Matt. That really put out something interesting there, that idea as well of the construction of a, a great live album. So with, with Bloodbath I was talking about earlier, it's less um, sort of less difficult because we're talking about a band with a small amount of material. But at this point in time, Roundhouse Tapes, we're eight albums in with Opeth. The set list is, is nine songs long. Choosing that perfect set list... Um, from that whole period is is a very divisive thing. I mean, much like a live show, but I think um, audiences are far more forgiving of a live show having a kind of slightly odd set list than they would be the sort of live album, the the big recording of it. I'd like to say Lamentations is my favourite a live album for nostalgic reasons, but I I can't debate anything Matt said there. That like, it's definitely the best set list. Like. When is probably one of my all-time favourite songs by them. And yeah, having that as an opener, I was very excited. And it's such an odd set list as well. Like opening on stuff from the first three albums is is very brave. But yeah, shows um, shows kind of how different Opeth were at that point in time. I remember I used to see them touring a lot. And they used to be a band where you're like, oh, you never know what songs you're going to get live with Opeth. And in recent years, that's totally changed. And it's really taken kind of taken the fun out of seeing them live. So this next one is going back in time quite a bit, um, and I think it's very much just a live CD, a live album, um, although I think there is some video from the show up on YouTube. This is Gorefest with their 1993 album, The Eindhoven Insanity, um, taken from their performance at the, uh, is it the Dynamo Festival in Eindhoven? I think that's the festival they're at. Oh, I hope I'm right on that. Um but yeah, the Gorefest, it was really interesting is there's a band called Gorefest, and this shows how different a time 1993 is. They are playing in front of an audience. You can see from the front cover, 
stretches further back than you can see from the kind of raised level of the the stage. A, a kind of very traditional death metal band performing to this absolutely ravenous crowd. And what is so good about the Eindhoven Insanity is it's one of those great albums where the intensity of the band is completely matched by the audience. Like, Gorefest are just incredible at this point in time, and the audience is going utterly crazy. Like, from the clips I've seen, people are being literally fired out of the crowd at the stage. Um, it, the the security staff are, like, hosing the crowd down with water because it's clearly incredibly warm out. And the four members of Gorefest are just totally matching this intensity, like... They're a very active band on stage. So if you're not familiar with them, Gorefest are a Netherlands-based uh, death metal band who like, started off fairly strong with mind loss, but really came into their own with 1992's False, where drummer Ed Warby joined the band. Ed Warby's gone on to be in many things, most famously Hail of Bullets and Aerion. Uh, we, I did a podcast dedicated entirely to his kind of incredible body of work. But this is a, features a very young Ed Warby, complete with long hair at this point in time. And at this point in time, um, what Gorefest's sound was, was this kind of very mid-paced, extremely heavy death metal. Not very, like, no frills. Like, there's not a huge degree of technicality in it, but it's just brilliant riff writing. I mean, at the moment, right, there's this this very kind of a big obsession at the moment with Bolt Thrower and Obituary. Like, there's a huge amount of resurrection of that sound. Like, a lot of hardcore bands picking up on that and taking those riff ideas from those bands and, you know, changing it up ever so slightly. I feel Gorefest's false is, like, unfairly left out of that kind of resurrection because it, it was absolutely brilliant. It's It kind of sounds like um, if... If Napalm Death, like Harmony Corruption Era, was a bit more mid-paced and more groovy and more memorable, um, vocalist uh, Jan Christie De Kulja, uh, I can never say his surname, I'm afraid, um, has a very similar delivery to, to Barney from Napalm Death. And the only, I guess the other difference is um, uh, we get from um, guitarist Frank Hawthorne this kind of far more blues-influenced lead guitar. Now, sadly with Gorefest, I think the reason they are not mentioned in the same breath as bands like Bolt Thrower is because, honestly, they tailed off quite hard after False. Their album Arrays, while I think in fantastically written, has such an odd production. It's something the band totally hated at the time. And then, for whatever reason, they put out two albums where they essentially did, like, kind of blues rock, but still with the screen vocals. Quite a good reunion uh, in the early 2005, put out two albums around that point, which were really solid. But if you want to hear Gorefest at the height of their power, the Eindhoven Insanity is where to go. The album more or less focuses on the on False, the, the album from one year prior, and the performance is just so incredibly sort of tight and brutal. It's, it's every bit as punishing as the album. The... Like they they are near perfect with it, but they just seem to be I don't know even just listening to the audio of it the band is so kind of 
aggressive with it. They feel so incredibly heavy and so intense. And they, like even without the visuals, you kind of get that from it. And like the whole way through, you can hear this totally ravenous sort of crowd screaming. Like, I just can't believe the enthusiasm for a, a band like this from such a big audience. But really, they, they are sort of giving it all on stage there's great moments if you see like well worth looking up the video for reality is when you die like when that song goes into its like heavy fast-paced middle section uh guitarist Bujan uh Bonebacker just starts like leaping around stage like he's completely possessed um Jan Chris, the front man um so at this point is like must be a very young guy like this extremely skinny shirtless guy sort of power stancing around the stage with his massive bass guitar it's just such a incredibly commanding presence he doesn't speak a great deal between songs and when he does speak none of it's in english it's all um but it, it, again it doesn't like take away from the intensity he does the does the classic death metal frontman thing of pretty much entirely communicating to the audience in his death metal voice fortunately you can understand the <laughs> the lyrics enough for that's not totally impenetrable between songs but yeah, there's something about this album where it just captures a band absolutely in their element this is the heaviest gore fest i think would ever sound and it's so cool to have that kind of you know archive of this point in time like because it's such a crisp recording of it it sounds utterly incredible even today so i hope by sharing this i can do my bit to um to encourage all you kind of uh, bolt thrower and obituary obsessives out there to go give uh, Gorefest, particularly False and the, the Eindhoven Insanity, a go, because I think you'll get a similar thing out of it. Um, if, if, if it is totally required, I, I will say that this slaps or this fucks, if, if that's really necessary. But please go check out Gorefest. So sadly, I seem to have misplaced my CD copy of this. And it seems to be basically impossible to get a digital download of at the moment. Uh, so you're just going to have to, have to imagine how, how good that was. But uh, it is all up on YouTube if you want to check it out. I think this might be a running theme through this episode as well. Because not all the live DVD ones necessarily come with an easy to get hold of uh, MP3 for each song. We'll see how it goes throughout the episode. Right, I'm now going to hand you over to Richard for a dive into some thrash metal. Hi, it's uh, Rich from the band Blood Rust. Uh replying to Phil's request for some live DVD CDs reviews so uh, I've picked one that uh, for me it's quite strange because I'm not the biggest or rather never was the biggest fan of this band um, just a band that kind of slipped by so the album I've picked is Exodus and it's the shovel-headed tour machine live at Vacan open air 2008 this was uh, not only my first time seeing Exodus, but also this was my first Vacan open air. Um, so it seemed fairly apt to pick this one. Now, this was shot, I can't remember if it was the Friday, I think it was the Saturday, um, in front of an estimated 60,000, which when you consider that the crowd for Iron Maiden, they estimated was in over 100,000 people. It's still a pretty good turnout. Now the set consisted of 11 tracks uh, taken, I think it was four came from Wonder by Blood, and then the remainder from sort of their, their, their latter sort of album releases. So you're looking at things like Songs of Tempo, The Damned, Shovelhead of Kill Machine, and the Atrocity Exhibition. 
Now, No Tracks featured off their album, I think it was released earlier in that year of Exhibit B. Um, I'm guessing primarily that either they hadn't had a chance to get the songs up to uh, up to scratch or that they figured nobody would have would have would have heard the songs enough to to throw it into a into a festival set. Um, obviously, I said before that the four songs came from Bonded by Blood, um, which they opened up straight away. Bonded by Blood, the first song in, kind of sets the, the, the tone and the tempo for the set. It, it was high energy. Um, you know, Rob Jukes was all over the stage in a pair of Star Spangled Banner shorts, um, slightly demonic running around the stage. And then you, you go into Iconoclasm and Funeral Hymn, so, so more latter-day songs, um, both of Atrocity Exhibition. Um, neither of them are short sets. That's probably what you wouldn't really class as festival songs because they were quite long. But again, you know, the songs whip by in no time, then straight back into Lesson of Violence. So again, going back to that Bonded by Blood, just to sort of, I think, remind people where they came from. Um, Rob Jukes did a bit of a, a bit of a rant at the, the start of uh, Children of Worthless God, which kind of got the, the crowd pumping. Um, probably these days would get frowned upon, but it went down fairly well with, with the crowd. Um, into Piranha, Death Amphetamine, Blackwish, War is My Shepherd, Strike of the Beast, and ended on Shovel-Headed Kill Machine. It was a fantastic set. Um, you've kind of got to wonder why these guys are, are labelled as many ways the, the second tier of thrash metal. I'd rather listen and watch these guys than, than Megadeth and probably even Anthrax on stage. Um, the energy was up all the time. Uh, the guitar sound just remained crushing. The solos were on point time after time after time. The guys were, were, were crisscrossing the stage. Um, Lee and Gary Holt left, right, moving all around. Um, Jack Gibson just kept the low end on the bass, just really pumping, um, you know. And then the big PA set, you could really hear it. Um, you know, it wasn't a slow set; it was really good. The sun was out. Um, the crowd seemed to be enjoying it, you know. And the cut into the big screens, you know, mosh pits and circle pits in front of the stage. Um, you can see why they were picked for probably that. I'm probably guessing maybe four or five o'clock in the afternoon. I can't remember. Um, you know, keep trying to keep people get the energy up for the the, the, the sort of the, the end of the day. I mean, it had been a fan, you know some of the other bands on that festival at the gates, Carcass with their sort of reunion lineup, Maiden on the first night. So yeah, they'd pick, they 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 put them on that that time slot I think just to keep things going. And yeah, and since then I've become a bit of an Exodus fan. Um, I really do like the Rob Jukes era of the band. I prefer him vocal-wise and probably on stage to, to seeing Zetro. I've only ever seen Zetro on sort of YouTube clips and videos, but Rob Duke seems to have it, and I think he's probably a better singer. When they were doing tracks that had more clean sung parts in the chorus and stuff, his, his voice was definitely definitely fairly good. The man can hold a tune. Um, and yeah, it was really good, uh, and I'm hoping that I can see Exodus again once this is all over. Looking forward to the new album. But if you haven't checked it out, then it's definitely well worth um, the DVD for the, the Vacant set, but then also the, the three-hour-plus other bits and pieces on the album, the documentary, the deleted scenes and all that. It's a really good snapshot of sort of Exodus is that part of their career after they'd kind of impacted it imminent and they'd kind of gone away and not been as, as prolific um, as many others. Um, but yeah, great great album worth checking out um probably better than many other thrash dvds have come out 
yeah, Slayer primarily there. Last forum show was a little bit naff, not to this high quality sound. Admittedly, the amount of fire they use kind of offsets that. But yeah, but thanks very much for listening. And cheers, Phil. chose that one like that is that was one i definitely would have included if he hasn't i've always felt like exodus were one of the strongest uh live thrash bands going especially of that that older era and this is this is a really good capturing of it this is one of the best uh dvds out there actually if you want to show your your kind of non-metal mates kind of how wild some of the crowd antics of a gig gets there's like a there's a really good wall of death in this and like, the kind of massive circle pit throughout yeah, really excellent. And as Richard said at the start, he's from the band Blood Rust. Um, if you enjoy like Exodus and that kind of style of like sort of the heavier end of thrash metal, check out Blood Rust. Absolutely fantastic uh, debut album. The Burning of Aeons came out um, middle of last year, I think. Next up, I'm going to combine two live releases by a band because I want to talk about both. So tragically, uh, in the last few months, uh, Children of Bodom's Alexi Leo passed away. Um, and sadly, the Children of Bodom are obviously no more off the back of that. So more than ever, these these live albums have been really, really important for me to revisit because Children of Bodom were a big part of my getting into metal, as I imagine probably is true for many of you. They, they are... They're kind of a classic gateway band, especially a lot of that early material 
is something that means a hell of a lot to us. So I was sort of really into them around like 2005 when Are You Dead Yet came out. And not too long after that, uh, yeah, a year later, 2006, we got Chaos Ridden Year, Stockholm, Knockout Live. So unlike uh, unlike Opeth, Children of Bodom, they're, they're not a band who are going to delve into all their weird stuff for, for a live album. This set list is exactly the songs you'd expect from from if you're told pick 15 children of Odin songs from the first five albums i'd be surprised like if you know those albums i'd be surprised if you've got more than one wrong like it is that they have their classics and each album has their kind of like three like real standouts that have to be played like we've got to get downfall we've got to get follow the reaper uh, angels don't kill silent night don't night you know, all the kind of needle twenty four seven. That's another one. That's, yeah, has to be in there. But it's a really fun capturing of the band. Like they have this great stage setup with this like, like horror movie prop type car in the middle of the stage. We have like drums up on one side, keyboards on the other, and then the three guitarists rocking out center stage. This is one of the earlier times we see new rhythm guitarist Ropi Latvala. Um, sort of take the stage of the band and at this point he was an incredible presence he was in stone which are a, a band if you've been reading rotting ways to misery the history of finnish death metal were hugely influential in the early uh the early kind of finnish scene and uh, alexi had always credited him as a a massive influence so seeing those two rocking out together was was absolutely awesome the band have incredible energy on stage i was always um although he's not someone who stands up too much on the albums uh henker blacksmith the bass player i always felt had a really amazing presence just like he's always rocking the fuck out and alexi we all know had that incredible stage persona for such a little guy he he really dominated the space and yeah like very very active while playing this complex technical music like particularly his solos are ridiculous but even though a lot of the rhythm parts are incredibly complex for this band the um as i say the the set list is no surprises but i even as someone who's who was really deep into children of bone at that point in time i knew all five albums inside out that was exactly what i wanted from them and there's some fun additions there's lots of there's lots of silly moments and they're a band that um i guess say much like sort of dragon force at the time were kind of known for having quite quite fun stage antics that went around the went around the whole performance so they had these these great um like kind of pillars like these kind of barrels that shot flames out and at one point um alexi like cooks a sausage on a on a scythe and chucks chucks it into the audience uh, while making a joke about how how they take more care of their their fans and the black metal bands because they actually cook their food for them there's bits where like alexi you know alexi uh uh, Yane, the keyboard player, is doing a keyboard solo, and and uh, and Alexi like serves him a beer. There's always kind of very rock star things of there. There's a keyboard solo. There's a like a, a guitar duel. There's a there's a drum solo. This is this has a lot of the hallmarks of a classic like seventies rock gig versus um versus what you would see in, in like a lot of like sort of. You could say like the quote I mentioned Vader earlier, but like they're kind of set. I don't think they would they would mess around with stuff like that so often. It's even a solo solo from Rope, who's who's an incredible guitarist. And I don't know why in Children of Bodom he was brought in as 
just the rhythm guitarist, never given any solos, because he's a brilliant lead guitarist. I guess Alexi's leads are such a core part of of the band's sound. But yeah, there's so many fun elements on top of the performance. And the performance, as I said, has got a great deal of energy. Um, the, the issue with it is, and this, I think, became more of a problem in their career as they went on, like, they're a fun band and they really like to include, like, drinking in the set. But is as the set goes on, particularly into the last few tracks, you can tell the band are getting more and more drunk. Like, say you watch the live video of Needle 24-7, the solo for it is quite sloppy. This is this is not like a studio perfect performance of their songs. It's not like, say, when Matt was talking about Opeth earlier, these are like possibly better than like the original tracks. This isn't true with, with um Stockholm Knockout Live. This is this is the band just being super fun and having an amazing stage presence. And I mean the songs still sound great, but they are not as precise because they include so much kind of having fun into the set. But for me at that point in time it was really really great to see that kind of capture of those songs because I was living somewhere where I couldn't get to gigs and it was, yeah, really great to see how Children of Bodom worked live. Now, something I always thought had the the edge over this as a live recording is they have a very weird one, like released very early in the career, actually much like uh, much like Gorefest and, and uh, Bloodbath. Two albums in, they put out the Tokyo Warhearts album back in 1999. So this is just after... We've, we've got the first two albums, uh, Something Wild and Hatebreeder, and has a set list which is a, a really nice meshing of those two. Uh, it's much shorter. I think the, the whole album is, is under un, well under an hour. But we get a load of tracks on this that you don't really see played live by the band like after that point. Um, it's, it, you know, stuff like Towards Dead End is, is the closure of the set, whereas, you know, obviously from this era late, later on... Um, it will be downfall. They touched like an angel of death on this. It's absolutely amazing. There's a there's a whole passage at the start where they reimagined a piece of um of of kind of orchestral music and added all this lead guitar as this intro to touch like an angel of death. And this is absolutely epic moment. And the crowd are so audible on this as well. They they seem to be so into it, which is amazing for Children Bone in nineteen ninety nine. I didn't really realize they are that big but apparently in japan they 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 are absolutely amazing and unlike the the stockholm knockout this doesn't seem to get more sloppy as it goes on it's absolute precision the the band are are on fire on it there's less messing around as well there's um there's one two minute instrumental war of the razors which is a bit of a keyboard and guitar duel but it it very much feels like an interlude just played straight out of the excellent better razors into like one of their all-time heaviest songs dead night warrior and because these first two albums i feel were very different to the rest of children bone's career they sort of have this harsh edge to them. There was, this, especially in the debut, but even a little into Hatebreeder, there was this touch of black metal to the sound. It wasn't this, like, full-on super melodic uh, death metal. Also, I felt the song structures were a bit weirder uh, at this point in time. I was saying, I, I really like those first two albums, so for me, this is um, this is just such a good capture of the band. I, the, the album cover is totally stupid of their, their Reaper character fighting a a fire-breathing Godzilla knockoff, but um, 
you know, like, Children of Ponyman never been good at album covers, so that, that really doesn't bother me. And sort of Alexi's crowd interaction is kind of slightly less pantomime and silly in this, and it's it's a bit more a bit more kind of rocking and aggressive. I've looked up what uh, film score that, that Touch Like an Angel of Death intro is from. Apparently it's The Rock um, from, I believe, 1996, um, which is a fairly rubbish Sean Connery film, if I remember rightly. I've definitely seen it, and I remember thinking it was stupid at the time, but probably not seen it in about 10 years, so don't trust me too much with that. You've got it! seem to be in a very death metal mood tonight um next one up is vader with and blood was shed in warsaw so this captures vader in 2007 i believe like deep deep into their career like vader ridiculously um frontman peter has been running this band since 1993 and they've gone through a huge amount of lineup changes over that period this album captures them at one of my personal favourite periods of the band. They've done a hell of a lot of live albums between, like, I believe the eight studio albums they had out at this point in time. They also had a collection, a covers album, uh, about five EPs, multiple live albums, a live video collection. So Vader one of those bands who have put out, like, 
more kind of stuff than you could possibly own. Like, even as an excess obsessive fan at this point in time, there were certain EPs I wasn't able to pick up. But yeah, uh, Blood of Shadows Warshall was the first, uh, for me, like, really great capturing of them. They have an older video from 2004, uh, Night of the Apocalypse, which is cool. It's got some good interviews in there and, like, a couple of, like, really decent live performances in it. But the problem with it is it's it's kind of filmed over like five or six venues. Totally acceptable way to sort of do this, but it just meant nothing was captured quite so kind of crisply. And there's a sort of massive overlap in set lists. Like we get, I think Wings is performed like three different times. Uh, uh, Zephyr is is performed quite a few, of uh, Kefir, sorry, is performed quite a few times. Like that, that sort of litany stuff is really heavily focused on. Um, Whereas the Blood was Shed in Warsaw is this one um, just over an hour long set of 20 of their classic tracks performed by a particularly excellent lineup of the band. So, as I said, Peter, vocalist and guitarist, has had regular guests, uh, regular kind of other musicians in the band. Like, in terms of studio arms, he actually plays all the guitar parts barring the half of the solos he gives off to the the other guitarist and does all the bass work so he just essentially just him a drummer and an additional lead guitarist so live there's always quite a difference in sound for this particular lineup um we have mauser who was a very long time member of the band like he um he was with them since black to the blind their third album um also Notably, this this lineup is all the guys who were in Desiree, who I covered um, a few episodes back in my sort of death metal Forgotten Gems. Yeah, so on top of that, we have Darié on drums and Novi on bass. Darié is in basically at this point in time every slightly underground um, <laughs> like Polish death metal project he seems to have appeared in briefly. Like he's he's the guy who's always in like the side projects of the behemoth guys and uh Novi was a guy who was very active uh with bands Devlin, Desiree, um uh and Behemoth before before uh before he joined Vader. He was um he was in Behemoth for like the era just before they broke big. He I think he left the band just before Demigod came out be replaced obviously by by Orion. So I, uh, what I really love about this album is I think by a country mile, Novi is the best bass player they've ever had. He he does he's this amazingly technically gifted player, doing a huge amount of like this hyper fast like slap bass, which gives his kind of his playing this incredibly like loud attack to it. Um and it's amazing to watch him doing this hyper complex bass playing, whereas like a lot of the bass players I had before or since were, you know, your very standard pick bassists. They're like, they're all tight in that, but um, yeah, they're just not quite as exciting. And Mauser, I think, is definitely my favorite lead guitarist um, Vader's ever had. Like no, no slur on Spider since, um, but he just doesn't quite capture the same energy in his solos. Obviously, having Vogue from Decapitated was amazing, but. It, that album didn't quite live up to it. Darié is is just like he he's a really solid drummer. The problem is he is wedged between two utterly incredible drummers. Like obviously Doc, um, rest in peace, was utterly amazing. And if you want to see his brilliant performance, I believe I believe it's him on some of the Night of the Apocalypse stuff. And you can also see him on that 
Desiree uh, DVD I, I spoke of. And the so the newer drummer they they've got is is I remember seeing him in about 2011 with the band. He's just this like young protege. He was already utterly brilliant. I think he was only in his like very very early 20s. So because the one the one thing that is lacking of this is it's not the best drum performance the band would ever have, but it's still brilliant. Um, with Vader said it's a very to the point kind of death metal set. The kind of the one leaning towards kind of um, something, I guess, something a bit more pretentious is they, they've they really incorporated those um, intros that were so big um, in the Impressions in Blood, Art of Warrior, those big uh, classical bombastic things, which I think work amazingly having this, like, the, the brilliant kind of... Um, minute-long intro into Shadowsphere, the the opening track from Impressions in Blood. It just gives a sense of, like, sort of epicness before you're hit by the death metal assault. And, and Vader, they're that kind of band where they've been going for a long time, so there's there's elements of thrash in their sound. Like, you can very much hear the Slayer in, in Peter's Lee guitar playing. And the fact they're not, they're not like, a hyper-low-tuned one, but they're just so fast and to the point and brilliantly catchy the set list is such a perfect kind of covering of all that kind of era like well not all that like all the various eras of the band so we get stuff from the debut album and from the excellent deeper fundus album there's some really great cuts from litany the only album that's kind of sort of left out is i don't believe they play anything off revelations but honestly, if they were going to skip one, Revelations is is not one of the better. Like it's not one of Vader's absolute classics. A couple of tracks off the Beast, which was never amazing. But there's a lot off the Art of War and Impressions in Blood, that EP and album that came out 2005, 2006, which I absolutely love. I think that was some of Vader's best work at that point. I know, I, I think they're fairly popular actually. But yeah, those two were very short and to the point releases and they work so well in this live set they they basically play the art of war in full like and because it, it's only like a 12 minute long release so like yeah they play about 10 minutes of it in the middle of this dvd and it's just absolutely spectacular the performance it's not like the most incredibly shot thing like vader's stage gimmick in this is they have these these big fans in front of each member of the band so like all their hair sort of blowing backwards which is is quite a cool Quite a cool kind of look to them. They're playing in a much bigger venue than I'd expect as well. Like they, they, they seem to have a pretty massive crowd. Although the way the DVD shot, um, it, it there there isn't much actual kind of footage of the crowd. It is all pretty much in the band. And as I say, like Peter doesn't mess around with talking to the crowd at all. He very much does um, quick song introductions, and that's it. And the, the whole thing is so quick, like. I think it's almost twenty, like eighteen, twenty tracks, something like that, and it's over in less than an hour. Like it was only less than a, just over an hour. It's just like that Vader assault of, you know, they can drop um, everything they need in two and a half minutes with like a track like Cold Demons is just complete steamrollering in two minutes, and it's perfect. Uh, yeah, this sounds pretty decent. I, it's not perfect it's certainly not better than any of the albums but for me it was so cool to just see the band kind of performing live like this because they'd always been a great live act it, it really works 
And something this album brings up, which I think, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting point, I, I think, is we're seeing like this particular lineup, because Urbana had gone through a lot of lineup changes, uh, performing everything from the various eras of their career, you know, performing stuff that's as old, like tracks that are as old as like the very early 90s. And later, in like a year later, in 2008, they put out their 25th anniversary album where this lineup re-recorded a load of the classic old material. And that, bands do this all the time, but there's a lot of lineup changes and they do like the you know, the, this is the new lineup playing a reimagined version of these songs. And to be honest, they're always disappointing. They're always, they're always annoying. There's always something that like, you, you're never going to recapture the magic of those great tracks. Like famously, like Exodus doing Bonded by Blood again was horrible. Uh, that uh, Arch Enemy one where Angela redid all the Johan Lever era stuff was really not for me. I didn't enjoy that at all. Uh, but had this is the idea I, I sort of the thought I always have is like had rather than they gone to the studio to do that had Arch Enemy instead performed a set with Angela of all the the old material that was going to be on that album I mean they had to learn it to record it right and recorded that as a live album I would have loved it and I would have think I would have thought it went down it would go down with the fans so much better like and I don't get why bands keep doing this like. Rather than re-recording the old stuff, unless it was a total disaster and, you know, not popular, but if it's a loved album, do a live version and people will like it. Like, you you tour the, the live tour of um, of all the old material, but with the current lineup and with these slight, you know, changes or reimagining of the parts of the songs that work better in that, that particular context. Brilliant. Whereas, you know, re-recording it, kind of offensive kind of kind of shitting on the legacy slightly and i don't know i'm can't even quantify quite why that's true but like here it's so fun to see a track like cold demons which is on the album great but slightly annoying because there's so many samples in it performed here by the band without any of the samples i'm like oh that's a really brilliant version of it or or getting a track like wings with novi's incredible kind of slap bass in the background giving it a bit more oomph um which obviously wasn't there on the the original album version there's, there's actually you should say as well there's a really cool end to the set where they are joined on stage by the new at that time behemoth bass player orion who does vocals for a cover of uh Rikonesia by cat i probably pronounced it totally wrong so cat i had no awareness of at the time but apparently hugely important um uh band for for like the polish like the early polish heavy metal scene i think similar kind of uh legacy to say like europe for um for sweden um and it's it's a really cool cover and it's just nice as well to see like like orion in a context you wouldn't really see him like out of his makeup uh just rocking jeans and a t-shirt and and just like rocking out as a front man it was um yeah, I'm not quite sure why why they decided to do this as a closer, but it it was really really cool, and he is a great frontman for for a band. So like seeing that was was really interesting, and it's good that it introduced me to the likes of Cat because that's a bit of musical history I had I had no knowledge of whatsoever. But yeah, I mean I think Vader have done myriad live releases post this one, but 
I'd say this is definitely a great start point if you want to sort of see them in the live setting. And and it covers, you know, at this point, probably like the first half of their albums. But it, it's a really good set list from that. Sadly, there's not one I'm going to be able to play a track from because clearly with this one, Vader wanted to capture the kind of visual element of their live show and weren't so interested in putting out the... Um, the just the audio as well I mean, which i think is definitely the right way to experience this one is to to watch the performance so for a complete shift in tone um next one i want to talk about is orphan lands the road to orshalem live at reading free in tel aviv this i think i've mentioned this before possibly on the 2011 um review i did uh, this is a, a particular favorite live dvd of mine and I imagine many of you have heard like Orphan Land and known for being a kind of great live band, but they're a band I sort of have issue with in in as a live band as I do with a few others. So like if you've ever seen bands like sort of Septic Flesh or Demi Borgia live, where they're good at what they do, but there's a hell of a lot on the backing track, and Orphan Land often have that problem because. They're a band who use a hell of a lot of keyboard and traditional folk instruments as well in their music, have uh, guest female vocals on a lot of their songs, but none of that is part of the band. The band is the core of five guys, vocalists, two guitars, bass and drums, so anything like that in a song is coming over a backing track, which sometimes can make the live performance feel a bit, I don't know, just a bit, bit lacking, like... You're essentially being played quite a lot of the music, and there's no one there actually performing it. Um, I think yeah, all three of the bands I've mentioned have like sort of clean vocals that no one's actually doing. Um, Orphan Lad, though, despite that, is still a brilliant live show. A huge amount's down to like the incredible personality of uh, frontman Kirby Fari. Like he's just so interesting on stage and and such an accomplished singer like it's still always really great to watch but what is so great about this performance in 2011 is they actually have everyone with them they have uh shalomit levy doing the backing vocals she does on all the albums we have like a twin thing of like uh kind of an extra sort of traditional instrument section and um, various additional percussionists behind them. So the back line has like five extra people sitting there doing all this additional music. There's still a, like little bits and pieces on the backing track, but it just feels so much more like a live band. For me, it's in the kind of perfect era of their career as well. So for those who don't know, Orphan Land are the Israeli... Um, originally death metal band for a couple of albums then they made their like real mark in 2004 with Mabul which was a kind of melding of their early death metal with a lot of Middle Eastern folk influences a lot of like very Israel specific stuff um and then as they went on they took on more and more of the kind of folk influence and kind of little bits of like prog rock and more traditional heavy metal like by the time we get to um, All Is One that comes out two years after this, they've fully morphed into a like a, basically a folk metal band at that point. Whereas like Never Ending, Never Ending Way of the Ore Warrior, um, the album that precedes this live DVD, is kind of in that middle ground. Certainly got some folk lean, uh, not folk, uh, some prog leanings with having Steve Wilson on board to produce it, and I think he had some backing vocals on it. So they they they're sort of you know going through that transition but at this point in time 
they're still heavy. And also, really important thing, uh, with this lineup, they still have incredible sort of lead guitarist and backing vocalist, uh, Yoshi Sassi, before he went off to follow his solo career, who was always sort of one of the real highlights of the band for me. The guy has some incredibly melodic lead playing skills. Like he's, he's just such a fantastic writer of that kind of stuff. The set list is more or less entirely Mabul and Never Ending Way of the All Warrior. Um, there's there's a few older bits and pieces thrown in there, but uh, mainly it's those two albums. And to be honest, that makes sense. Like their early material, I enjoy, but I don't think it's quite up to the quality of Mabul. Mabul, I think, is a a properly well beating album, and All Warrior's got some really great moments. Like taken taken at face value there's there's like five songs i really love on it it's just a bit bloated at 15 tracks long but this live performance it just sells the band as such a brilliant live band they are so active and engaging on stage they all seem to be having such an incredibly good time with this incredibly on board home crowd who are just going mad for every moment of the set and you know seem to know all the words the having the two vocalists to trade off for a lot of the songs like um particularly in say something like uh Sapari or kiss of babylon where the two singers are trading back and forth in loads of places has this amazing aspect to it but also because it's got that slight higher focus on their sort of middle period we also get a lot of kobe's scream voice which was brilliant and a, a shame to have completely lost almost on the last two albums there's some incredible moments of like stuff actually getting pretty brutal whereas you know the the core of this sound probably is that kind of folk metal at this point um yeah, and with that whole backing band as well, the, the sound is just really huge, and and the actual the the live recording is really decent. Um, the sort of newest drummer Matan he adds a lot on this album. I think he he is he's a re despite being behind the drum kit, he is a really engaging presence of this. Regularly doing like tricks with his sticks and any bits any beats that are a bit too simple for him, and even adding his own like backing death metal vocals to a few of the tracks later in the set. The the kind of when I say the the band are really engaging on stage the. This is really typified by the, the track from Broken Vessels in the middle of the set, where there, it, during a long instrumental passage, uh, Kobe disappears from stage, only to re-emerge from the back of the crowd, walking out through the crowd, and brings himself right into the middle of it, like, like sort of singing on a headset mic, uh, when, and when we're a particularly folky moment kicks in, gets all the crowd around him to start jumping up and down. Then the camera cuts back to stage for 30 seconds of music with no vocals. And then after this kind of like, he's singing clean while he's out in the crowd. And then he leaps back on stage and does some of his heaviest scream vocals. And it's just this utterly brilliant moment. Like, if you can find it on YouTube, it's it's just so incredible. And gave me a kind of newfound appreciation for the song, like watching it performed with such intensity. Really fun uh, guest appearance as well. Um... Steve Wilson comes out on stage to to do a duet on one track and sing his own sort of acoustic take on one of their really oldest songs, The Blood's Cry, which is we first appeared on their like debut EP and is a very melodic outing for their, their sort of early stuff. And yeah, Steve Wilson does this great like acoustic um 
rendering of it. And then the set ends with this really, um, really uh, great kind of um, crowd sing-along of Nora El Nora, where they get like a, a father of one of the bands who's, you know, sort of, I think he's like, does singing and stuff for, for like sort of religious stuff, um, get him out on stage to kind of lead this kind of very celebratory, celebratory song um, with, yeah, just this kind of crowd who are just absolutely on board. But this for me is like absolute high point of Orphan Land's career, not just in terms of like this being between my favourite albums, like this is capturing them at the absolute sort of top of their game. Like, when, when we get back to gigs, I'd still highly advise, like, tracking them down if you can go to see them. But seeing them like this just makes me really gutted. They don't have that bit more money behind them where they were able to tour with a few more people involved. Like, particularly Shomit Levy would be so good to have involved because her performance is fantastic. Her vocals are amazing in this. Like, having whole passages, like I mentioned Kiss of Babylon earlier, where she sings completely kind of unaccompanied and it just sounds amazing. Like, her voice is absolutely spectacular. Um, and, yeah, the, the, that's, that's kind of, like, everything about it is just so well pulled off. Like, I guess outside the vocals, none of this is the most technical stuff. Like, it's not the most impressive to witness, but they bring such kind of energy and passion to it. It's so incredibly captivating. <laughs> split this into two episodes because there's a load of cool albums i want to talk about so i'll leave you one more listener review don't worry if you're you're not in this episode you'll definitely be in the second one if you submit a review um this this one though is a, a fun collaboration uh so yeah i'll pass you over to donovan zimmerman for this hi my name's donovan 
And the live album I chose was Aranzi Pazuzu's Live at Roadburn 2017. First problem that arose with this choice was that I do not speak Finnish, and Aranzi Pazuzu is all in Finnish. In fact, I don't even know what sound that many of the letters are supposed to make. So while I do not have Phil's melodious voice, I did enlist some help from the only Finnish person I know. Lauri Laurila. The first thing I noticed when Lari sent me the clips is that Oranzi Pazuzu sounds better when it's pronounced in Finnish. Oranzi Pazuzu. Before I get started on this, the one thing I gotta mention is the Oranzi Pazuzu live stream they did right when COVID started. It's one of the best live streams I've seen during the entire year. It's fantastic. Watch it and if Whenever you get to see Aranzi Pazuzu in the future, you'll know what you're up for because it's a great show. So, on to the album. The first song on the album is not my favorite, but it's a good one. It's called Give It. I'm sure it's great when you see them live. It's a cool opener. It gives you the feeling of what you're going to get. It has a buildup. But as for a song, I don't know. It just doesn't do a whole lot for me. Um, it's actually not even on any album. It's just from a single that they put out. But what it leads into is one of my favorite songs out there. It's The song is called Saturatio. And it's from the album Värähtelijä. Or as I like to call it, the hair album. Um, that's also going to be what I'm going to continue to call it because... That's not how I would have guessed that album was pronounced. One of the things I learned early about Aranzi Pazuzu is that I have to give all their albums names. So I have Hand, Spaceman, Hair, Bird, Sun, Moon. I don't know what it is. First thing is, this song I actually like better than on the original album. Partly due to the fact that the original album is compressed like hell. I mean, it is really, I believe the technical name for it is Brit. This is a lot more dynamic. And if they ever put out a dynamic release for the original, I'm all over it. But um, until then, I enjoy that. One of the things I always loved about Aranzi Pazuzu is the feeling that they give you. There's a feeling of dread, typically, that you sort of feel. And there's always a lot, there's a lot of buildup and just then things spinning out of control. Um, one of the things I really like about Aranzi Pazuzu is how they use their keyboards to such a great effect. They're not symphonic like a lot of other black metal bands would do it. They're just swirly, creepy keyboards that sound like they're aliens from space. I mean, that's how I would describe it. This song often makes me feel like I'm in a spaceship. Aliens are attacking. They've gotten inside my ship. The... Aliens look like Cenobites from Hellraiser, and you hear clicking sounds, and they're milling around outside, teeth chattering. And then it breaks into the next song, which is called Lahaya. Basically, if I was to continue with my space story, it basically feels like you're trapped and a plan starts to formulate, but you feel like you're tripping on acid. You sounds like you hear these tribal drum beats in the background, just faintly. You start wondering if you've been fed crazy mushrooms. It's not what I would call a normal song. It's it almost seems like a bridge to the next song, 
but I'm I've seen him play it live in concert and it's fantastic. I think this song is a perfect uh, display of Jun Hiss. I forgot to get how you pronounce his name, but that's how I pronounce it because Hiss is a pretty good description of it in this case. But it melt it works really well with this type of music. Then we get into the next song, which is Havulu. Which is the sixth song off the hair album. I guess the best way to describe that song is three minutes of sort of pleasure and then seven minutes of swirling chaos. It's a wonderful song, as all of them are. But and while I love these three songs and the hair album is probably my favorite Ronzi Pazuzu album, um, it's dynamic compression aside. The next song is the first song off their previous album, which is called Valo Nielu. And the song is called Vino Verso. And it is probably my favorite opener to any album because it sets the table for what you're going to experience. There's some sort of glitchy keyboards in the back. They sort of turn into wailing as they come to the foreground. And the guitars keep playing the same rhythm over and over. And it puts you in sort of like this hypnotic trance inducing four minutes. So now in my story, the aliens have got you. They've hypnotized you to get you ready to put you into cryosleep. This is followed by the closer. Hierarchia. As far as the alien story goes, this is basically you coming out of a drug-induced haze and realizing that something's ripped out of your body. And it's your beautiful alien xenomorph child. But your child starts gnawing on your leg. That's basically what this song makes me feel. I think it's a perfect ending for this. It'd be a perfect ending for the show. It's basically you would feel spent after this show. My first recommendation, if you have never listened to this before, and if you want to listen to this album, put on good headphones and just sit back and listen to it. It's not something that will sound great in your car, I suspect. It's something that's really got to be listened to and good speakers or good headphones. Um, like I said, if you have never seen the live stream, I highly recommend it. If you didn't listen to their album that came out last year, which was my number one album of 2020, it's called Mestarin Kynsi. And it's wonderful. Um, the video for it's really cool too, if you check that out. And my best advice is if they tour and come around even anywhere close to you, definitely check them out. They are fantastic. Um, the best show I've seen outside maybe Zeal and Arter, who also put on a fantastic show. I'd like to thank Phil for letting me do this. I'd also like to thank Laurie for giving me the clips and finish. Um, I was going to try and memorize them, and I said, no, I think I'll just give Laurie the credit where it's due and play him. So you can really hear what it sounds like. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Donovan and Lowry, for that. That was really excellent. And it's an album I'd previously not checked out until uh, until Donovan recommended it to me. Um, if you want more excellent sort of uh, interesting black metal uh, recommendations, I think you can find Donovan on Twitter, at uh, Donomite5. Uh, so yeah, I think this is going to wrap it up for the first half. I've got... Like another three listener submissions and another like five or six albums I want to cover. So I think there should be plenty for a second part and hopefully I can 
spread out for a few more uh, music genres with this. As always, um, thanks a lot for listening. If you've got any uh, any recommendations of your own, please please get in touch uh, at philsbreakfastmetal at gmail.com, um, uh, at Breakfast Metal on Twitter, or you can find us Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook. Uh, the I'll be recording the second one now, so unfortunately we are kind of done with listener submissions for this. But as this works really well, we might do another episode where I, I get some listener reviews in again for stuff because it was great fun for me and meant I had to do half the work. Um, but yeah, the, these are absolutely amazing so far. Thanks so much to Donovan, um, Richard, uh, and Matt. Like those are all absolutely brilliant. 